This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Barbara Mujica about her latest novel, Miss Del Rio. I have to admit that I had never heard of Dolores Del Rio until I encountered this novel. So a large part of the fun in reading it was learning more about her storied career in both Hollywood and her native Mexico. But another equally enjoyable element is the entwined history of Mara, the narrator, whose memories of her friend frame and define the novel. Los Angeles, April 11, 1988. I can hardly believe she's gone. She died on April 11, 1983, exactly five years ago. I lit a candle and said a prayer, but I wasn't able to lay a bouquet on her grave. She's buried in the Panteón de Dolores, in the Rotonda de las Personas Ilustres in Mexico City, and I can no longer travel. I'm too old. Arthritis has stiffened my legs and fingers, and I just can't handle the hustle and bustle of the airport. To the world, she was Dolores del Rio, Hollywood star and first lady of the golden age of Mexican cinema. She was Mexico's first international female film personality, a celebrity on three continents. She was the embodiment of beauty, glamour, and elegance. To me, she was Lola, my best friend. And now, please join me in welcoming Barbara Mujica. Hi, Barbara. I look forward to talking with you today. Thank you. It's great to be here. You spent much of your career teaching early modern Spanish literature at Georgetown. At what point did you begin writing novels, and why? I wrote fiction even before I came to Georgetown. Uh, I started my career writing Spanish-language textbooks, and all of them included my own short stories. My first novel was uh, The Deaths of Don Bernardo, which was published by a small press in 1990. And at the same time, I was teaching early modern literature at Georgetown, Don Quixote, the plays of Lope de Vega, uh, the writings of St. Teresa, that sort of thing. And I was also teaching courses on Latin American culture and history. And a big topic was the Mexican Revolution and naturally the muralists, uh, Diego Rivera, Siqueiros, Orozco. And a lot was written about these men, especially Diego Rivera, but at the time, little about his wife, Frida Kahlo. But after I read Hayden Herrera's biography of Kahlo, I started to think she would make an excellent topic for a novel. She was an artist in her own right, a rebel, a free thinker, um, a mass of contradictions, 
uh, generous and selfish, uh, kind but very manipulative, a woman who suffered from debilitating illness but who used her illness uh, to get others to do her bidding. The result was the novel Frida, which became an international bestseller. Uh, by then, Frida mania had set in, and everybody was interested in Frida Kahlo. It was a stroke of luck for me. Uh, there were there were Frida Kahlo uh, refrigerator magnets and keychains and calendars, T-shirts, and then the film Frida uh, with Selma Hayek came out. Do you have another novel about Teresa of Avila uh, as well? Yeah, uh, around this time while I was writing Frida, I had a very profound uh, spiritual experience in which Teresa de Avila played a big part. Um, and St. Teresa was, uh, she was a reformer, a 16th century nun who placed more importance on the interior spiritual life, on contemplation and meditation than on, uh, than on empty ritual. Her father and grandfather were Jewish and lived during the period of forced conversions in Spain. And this focus on interiority was attractive to people like them who didn't grow up with Catholic rituals and didn't feel comfortable with them. Uh, Teresa's teaching on prayer, which for her was a kind of dialogue with God, not a bunch of uh, learned texts that people recited mechanically. Uh, Her teachings are really... I think, valid for people of almost any faith. And I taught courses on St. Teresa at Georgetown, and I've written academic books and articles on her, but I wanted to share her story with a larger audience, and so the novel Sister Teresa was born. Um, This isn't a book about religion. Uh, It's a novel about a feisty and sometimes very funny woman uh, who took on the authorities and won. And then after that, I wrote I Am Venus about the Spanish painter Diego Velázquez and the mysterious model for his only extant female nude, Venus at her mirror, which was painted at a time when the Spanish Inquisition strictly forbade nude painting. The focus of the novel is really on the women in Velázquez's uh, life. And much of my scholarly research has been on early modern women. And this novel enabled me to develop, to delve deeper into my subject. One of the things that makes writing biofiction so much fun is that you have to find out about everyday life in a different time period, um, what people ate, what they wore, what they did in their leisure time. So when you write a scholarly article, no one cares about the kind of underwear that people you're writing about were, you know, were wearing. But when you write fiction, it matters. You have to dress your characters. You have to know about ships and farthingales. So, uh, so that w- that was a really fun experience. Yes, and it can be very hard to find that information. Um, I write about uh, 16th century Russian women, and you know, getting the exact information about what people wore in the period that you're writing, as distinct in general, what they wore over centuries, can be really difficult. Yeah, well, the Chicago Art Institute has a whole under had well, they had a whole uh, underwear uh, exhibition uh, at the time. So <laughs> I was lucky; I got into there and was able to look at you know bustles and farthingales and all kinds of stuff. It was fun. Well, that was convenient. So, what made you want to tell the story of Dolores Del Rio? Well, I grew up in Los Angeles, and I've always been in love with Mexican cinema. 
by then, Dolores de Rio was no longer a big star, but she was a Hollywood legend. But my interest in her really blossomed when I wrote the novel Frida. Uh, Dolores de Rio, uh, Lola, to her intimates, was a close friend of both Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera, and she came up repeatedly in my research. She was a minor character in Frida and was a wonderful foil to the protagonist. Uh, Frida loved to be outrageous, to scandalize people by using vulgar language or making inappropriate comments. Lola was just the opposite. She had a strong sense of decorum and always projected an image of elegance and sophistication. Dolores del Rio arrived in Hollywood just when the studios were looking for a female Latin lover, a feminine version of the extraordinarily popular Rudolph Valentino. Um, she had talent, beauty, and a remarkable work ethic. Uh, and so she became a star practically overnight. Her limited English was not a problem because in those days, films were silent. But then in 1927, talkies were introduced and many actors, even native speakers of English, were terrified that audiences might find their voices unappealing, in which case their careers would be over. Um, however, Lola made the transition beautifully. She worked hard to master English and then use her accent to an advantage by always playing foreigners, French women, Brazilians, even Russians. She made one film after the other, Evangeline, The Bad One, Bird of Paradise, Flying Down to Rio, I Live for Love. And her, her exotic beauty really thrilled fans. In fact, uh, in 1932, a committee of experts designers, artists, medical authorities, even named her the most beautiful woman in the world. She was quite gorgeous. And listeners who want to find out more about her can uh, Google her and, and see some of the pictures. They, they, there's also a new website, the uh, Dolores del Rio. It's Dolores-del-Rio uh, website. And it tells about the book and it tells about her. Oh, excellent. So introduce us first to your narrator, Mara. Uh, we meet her toward the end of her life, but soon jump back to 1910. Who is she and what is happening to her then? So biofiction is a particularly tricky genre. I considered telling the story in the first person, but that's problematical. The author of a bio novel, uh, like myself, must inevitably come to terms with her own ability to see the world through her protagonist's eyes. We see our subject from our own historical reality and through our own historical or cultural biases, no matter how hard we try to immerse ourselves in the worldview of uh, the subject we're writing about. So I simply did not feel comfortable telling Dolores de Rio's story as though I were her. I decided that I needed a subjective narrator to tell Lola's story, someone who was close to her, but who could still see her as I did from, from the outside. I needed a narrator uh, who both uh, cherished Lola and was aware of her shortcomings. And so I asked myself what it would be like to know someone like her, a famous movie star who was always flying off to an opening or a party, what, it would, what would it be like as an ordinary person to be friends with someone whose photo was always in the magazines, who had to be impeccably dressed, uh, who took beauty naps to preserve her looks? So finally, I hit on the idea of Mara, 
Lola's longtime fictional friend and hairstylist as a narrator. Mata has known Lola since both were little girls, so she can describe Lola's childhood. Furthermore, uh, women often have a close relationship with their hairdressers and share their secrets with them. Uh, from, From my own perspective, having grown up in Los Angeles and known a lot of people who eventually became uh, movie people. Uh, from my perspective, a movie star's life isn't really so interesting. A constant schedule of screenings, photo shoots, uh, parties, and receptions, uh, that sounds tedious to me. And I wondered, you know, how many readers would identify with a character who led that kind of life? Furthermore, um, a wealthy, childless woman like Lola was sheltered from many of the realities that ordinary folks had to face during the 30s and 40s, the Great Depression, the polio epidemic, World War II. Mata had to face all of these challenges. So Mata is the character who keeps the reader anchored to reality. The novel begins when Mata is an old woman getting ready to write the story of her friend Lola, who has already died. What follows is the story of the two women from the time they were little girls in Mexico, uh, then moved to the United States, where Mara becomes Lola's personal hairstylist. Uh, Mara is actually a very, um, she's a fascinating character in her own right, so I do want listeners to hear that. We'll talk a little bit more about her, although we won't give away any of her secrets. Uh, uh, Dolores (laughs) occupies a very different socioeconomic position. Uh, What is her family like? I'm talking still about in 1910. So uh, both girls are originally from Durango. Uh, Lola was from a wealthy landholding family. Her father was a banker. Uh, when 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 the revolution began, families like hers were in danger of losing their land. Uh, because of the agrarian reform. Lola and her parents fled to Mexico City, uh, as many landholding people did. Um, Lola's mother had relatives there, and one of them was Francisco Madero, a reformist thinker who later became the first revolutionary president of Mexico. Lola and her mother lived with Madero uh, and his wife when they first arrived in the capital. Mara and her tia Emmy escaped from Durango when revolutionaries burned down the estate where they work. And Emmy winds up as a cook at the Madero home. And the two little girls uh, become friends. The Mexican Revolution is an important inciting element in the story, as you just described, but it also remains a touchstone for the events that unfold. For those who may not know much about it, could you give us a brief summary of what happened? Wow, that's really a whole course that I teach, but here it is in a nutshell. Uh, For decades, Mexico was ruled by the dictator Porfirio Porfirio Diaz, and rich landholding families controlled the economy. Peasants lived in miserable conditions. Uh, In 1910, Madero ran for president on a platform of reform, but uh, Diaz rigged the election. Uh, and had Madero jailed. Madero then escaped from prison and won the presidency uh, in in a later election. In the meantime, Emilio uh, Zapata led a revolt in the South with the objective of land reform, and Pancho Villa 
led a revolt in the north and joined forces with Huerta. And when Huerta became president, he had Madero shot. Madero was an intellectual, and he didn't carry out the agrarian form fast enough to satisfy the extremists. A period of intense violence followed until in 1917, a new constitution was produced and the revolution officially ended, although the violence continued for several years. The revolution was strongly influenced by Marxist thought, uh, and we can see that in the paintings of uh, people like Diego Rivera. Uh, Rivera didn't fight in the war. He was in Paris at the time. Uh, but in his murals, uh, you can see they're, they're actually filled with some of them are actually filled with hammers and sickles and red flags and um, uh, all kinds of communist uh, symbols. And that's why Lola's friendship with Rivera, Rivera and Kahlo became a problem for her when the Stalinist threat became very real uh, to Americans. Dolores and her mother are very close, and they remain close throughout their lives. What can you tell us about Doña Antonia and her relationship with her daughter? Doña Antonia it was a highly intelligent, fast-thinking woman who stayed by Lola's side during difficult times. Uh, she moved to California with her and helped her through her d- divorce from Jaime del Rio. Um, and she went back to Mexico with her and helped her through the tumultuous relationship with uh, Emilio Fernandez, the director. Um, the, the family was in the beginning a traditionalist and conservative, but it became very clear how the revolution was going. And they quickly, uh, Doña Antonia quickly switched sides and, uh, and became well, an ally of uh, Madero. She was living in his house. Uh, so, so that was, um, we can really see how shrewd she was. They called her Lagata, the cat, because she always landed on her feet. And her daughter also uh, was very, very shrewd and resilient, and she knew how to land on her feet. Uh, Tia Emmy uh, is a different kind of character. She is a down-to-earth woman of peasant stock who works as a, stream, a seamstress at the Durango estate and escapes with, uh, with Mara, uh, when the war starts, she's not impressed with the heirs of the rich, and she doesn't really trust Lola and her mother. Uh, at first, Mara thinks that Emmy is just a woman from the hacienda who was taking care of her. But as the re- relationship grows closer, we learn that there is more to the story. Let's skip forward a bit. Um, how do Lola and Mara both end up in Los Angeles and reconnect? At a party... In Mexico City, Lola and her husband Jaime meet Edwin Carraway, a Hollywood director. And Carraway recognizes in Lola a potential star. She's beautiful, vivacious, and a wonderful dancer. And he offers to bring her to Hollywood. And Jaime, at this moment, is thrilled because he dreams of becoming a screenwriter. In Hollywood, uh, Lola is an instant success, although things don't go so well for Jaime. Mara and her aunt escape from Mexico after Madero is assassinated. And Emmy is afraid that his assassins will come after everyone in the household. In Los Angeles, they get janitorial work in a beauty shop. And Mara is drawn to the beauty business. But Emmy um, is a seamstress. And eventually she gets a job for Madame Isabel, who's a costume designer in the studios. Mara uh, becomes a hairstylist 
but sometimes helps her aunt with the sewing. And uh, one day she runs into Lola at the studio and they renew their friendship. Lola's cousin Ramon also does well in Hollywood. What's his secret? Um, Ramon came to the forefront uh, because uh, Rudolf Valentino was a huge star. Rudolf Valentino was the uh, was a star for Famous Players Lasky, which was a forerunner of Paramount Pictures, and then for United Artists. Um, and the other studios then were scrambling to find their own Latin lover, and Novarro filled the bill. He was dark and handsome, although not tall, but the directors knew how to position him so that he appeared more imposing. In 1925, he made Ben-Hur for MGM, which was an enormous success. Then, in 1926, Valentino died of a gastric ulcer. Now the studios really needed another Latin lover, and Novarro went on to make one film after the other. Um, But in the 1930s, tastes began to change, and Novarro was less in demand and less successful and he became an alcoholic. What is Hollywood itself like at the moment your characters reach there? Um, Los Angeles has changed a lot over the years. Oh, it sure has. Uh, this, was when, this was when Hollywood was really taking off, when the star culture was born. Glamour, openings, parties, movie mags. Before around 1910, people just went to the movies. They just went to see a show. They didn't go to see a particular actor. But when the Canadian stage actress Florence Lawrence started making films, that changed. She became uh, a, a, a tremendous movie star, and then the actor became the main attraction. Mara has been uh, following her own path uh, from her the time of her arrival, and at first her path takes her away from Lola. We know Lola shows up and she becomes a movie star. How does Mara become a hairdresser? So Mara arrives in Los Angeles long before Lola. Uh, she, she goes to elementary and high school there, and she learns to speak uh, English. Uh, and she uh, finally gets a job. Uh, well, I mentioned that she, she and her aunt get a job in a beauty shop uh, doing janitorial work. Uh, uh, but, but then she, uh, she becomes interested in becoming a hairdresser. Uh, and at the time, you didn't need a cosmetology license to become a hairdresser. You uh, you needed to apprentice. So she apprentices until she learns. And at the same time, she helps her aunt uh, with costume design, with, with sewing costumes. And how does that bring her back in touch with Lola? So she's uh, on set. She's uh, helping her aunt uh, finish up a... Uh, a bunch of costumes for a film and she runs into, into Lola on the set uh, and they haven't seen each other for years and, and, and they're very excited to see each other and then uh, they each tell each other their stories. But uh, as usually happens, Lola monopolizes the conversation and that creates a little bit of tension between them but it is eventually resolved. You mentioned that the transition from silent films poses a, a special challenge for Lola, although it posed a challenge for most of the silent movie stars. And you talked a little bit about how she overcame it, but that also fits into her broader trajectory in Hollywood. I mean, she was really fighting not just to be um, the girl with the long legs and the it factor, right? 
Well, uh, let me talk a little bit about the, how she overcame the the problem with the with the talkies. Um, she was very crafty, and I think it's uh, it's it, that's an important part of her personality. Um, what happened was that the actors of United Artists decided to do a radio show in order to demonstrate to the public that they had passable speaking voices. However, some of them misjudged public taste. Uh, Douglas Fairbanks recited a passage from Shakespeare, which nobody liked. Uh, Charlie Chaplin stuttered all through his monologue and as a result uh, was afraid to make um, talkies for years. But Lola, instead of delivering a speech, she sang uh, the song, the theme song from her film Ramona. And although she still had a heavy accent at the time, her voice and the song uh, were so charming that the public just ate it up. Uh, the record became a bestseller and boosted the film. And after that, uh, she was able to play, uh, as I said, she started, she, she launched her career playing foreigners. Uh, and those were roles in which her accent didn't matter. And which were her favorite roles? Well, I, she didn't like her Hollywood roles. She became, she became very disenchanted with Hollywood. She, uh, she thought that the, the, the roles she, were, she was supposed to play, uh, she thought Hollywood was vapid, and she, resented, she began to resent the fact that she always played the sex kitten uh, in, uh, in, in these different f- films. And at, the, at this time, um, other directors in other countries were beginning to make socially relevant films in Germany uh, and in Russia. And then in, in Mexico, directors were beginning to look at social issues, poverty, um, uh, social hierarchy, uh, abuse of women and children and that kind of thing. And she really wanted to be part of this this new movement. Uh, so uh, in the period preceding World War II, uh, she really saw her opportunity. At that time, many Americans became xenophobic. Uh, many foreign actors, including Lola, uh, were deemed box office poison and couldn't get jobs. But instead of giving up, Lola turned uh, returned to Mexico and became one of the most important figures in the golden age of Mexican cinema. In 1946, she made Maria uh, Candelaria. That was probably her favorite role. Uh, she liked performing in Spanish, and she liked performing in her home country. Uh, that was a film in which she starred, and it won first prize at the Cannes Film Festival. It was the first Mexican film to be screened at the festival and the first Latin American film to win. She also had uh, developments in her personal life associated with the transition to Mexico. Um, and do talk about that just a little bit. Uh, well, she she was married to Jaime, uh, and she really she really did love him. But Jaime uh, was a flop as a as a screenwriter, as I said, and and it became very uh, uh, it became a very tense situation. And she was successful, and he just couldn't get his career going. Uh, so she wound up marrying. Um, Cedric Gibbons, who was uh, a set designer, uh, very avant-garde, very uh, very much in demand, an Oscar winner. Uh, but at the time, her career uh, started to fade. That was when she was named, she was called uh, Box Office Poison, and he was winning Oscars, and he was having one hit after the other, and she wasn't. And he didn't really seem that interested in her 
career. And before she even divorced him, she took up with Orson Welles. Orson Welles was uh, quite a bit younger than she was, um, but he was handsome. He was dynamic. He was working on Citizen Kane. Uh, he was uh, he he was very interesting, but he was also uh, very domineering, very difficult to work with, uh, and to live with. Uh, and eventually, it just became too much. He was an out. Yeah, he he was he was on drugs. Uh, he eventually she just couldn't take it anymore, and she broke off with him too. Uh, and that was and then at, right after that she returned she returned to Mexico. So I I don't mind too much asking you about uh, Dolores Del Rio because her life is is real. People can find it uh, at the details if they want. I'm a little more cautious in asking you about Mara because her. Um, her trajectory, especially her emotional trajectory, is what pulls the book along. Uh, but she does, during this period, especially once uh, Lola has gone back to Mexico, Mara creates a life that, although much less glamorous than her friends, is in many ways more fulfilling. So could you tell us a little bit about that and at least hint at the big question that plagues her throughout her life, even though even though we definitely don't want to give the answers? Mara stays uh, in Los Angeles. Um, they talk on the uh, uh, the phone rarely. The, the phone service isn't uh, isn't really established between uh, Mexico and Los Angeles at this at this point. But Lola does come to visit uh, sometimes, and they and they do stay in touch. But in the meantime, uh, Mata has children. She has four daughters. Uh, and the, the, um, well, first her husband loses his job during the depression. Uh, she has to go back to work and that is difficult with little children, but she, uh, she manages. And then, um, then the, the polio uh, epidemic starts and with little children, people were terrified of infantile paralysis and, uh, her husband, Gabriel is, uh, is is really uh, terrified of of something happening to his his children. He's he's uh, he, he's all he's a mother he's a mother hen <laughs> except he's a man. Uh, he 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 worries about them all the time. And uh, when she's when it turns out that she has her fourth daughter, she thinks he's going to be angry because um, typically you know Mexican society at this time is a very kind of macho. Machista society, and she expects him to uh, be disappointed because he wants a son, but he isn't. He's very supportive of her. Um, and uh, then when the world, when, then when World War II starts, he's drafted, and so uh, I, that gives me a chance to talk a little bit about a Mexican American's contribution to the American Army in World War II, which is actually quite interesting. Uh, but Mata's real question is that she doesn't know who she is. Uh, she doesn't know if Tia Emmy is really her aunt or just some woman uh, from the estate who um, who took care of her, the estate in Durango where Mata was born. Uh, because it wasn't unusual for one of the maids to have a baby, uh, father unknown. Uh, and if the maid died or left, uh, the other women just would take care of the child. Uh, so Mara becomes obsessed with finding out who her real mother is, and that's what uh, carries along uh, a lot of the action in the book. Before we close, have I left anything out that you would like listeners to hear about? Other characters, plot points, settings? 
Well, I would, uh, yeah, so I, I think I would uh, like to talk uh, a minute about Dia Emmy. I think she's an interesting character. She's a tough-talking, practical woman uh, who's not impressed with the Hollywood scene, uh, but she's shrewd, and she's shrewd enough to survive in any environment. She's also very funny. Uh, I, I think a lot of the humor in the book comes from Dia Emmy. Deep down, she's a warm person and very protective of Mara and her daughters. Another of my favorite characters is Gabriel, Gabe, uh, Mara's husband. He's a hardworking family man who adores his four daughters. He embodies all the positive attributes of the loving Mexican father. Um, although he hates the phoniness of Hollywood, he's supportive of Mara and her career. And I really wanted to um, include Gabe. He's a contrast with Emilio Fernandez, who was a real person, but who was also very uh, a machista, very, very much a bully, uh, very abusive to the women on, on set. And, and Gabe is just uh, the opposite. Uh, and he's the one who really demonstrates how the turmoil of the times, the depression, the polio epidemic, and the war really affected uh, ordinary folks. Uh, so uh, that, that, was, that was a character that, to me, was very important. Yeah, I really like Gabe. I thought he was a great addition because he's kind of the steadying center uh, of Mara's life and in a sense of the story as a whole because, you know, the rest of it is Hollywood. <laughs> right. It's not, all it's not all glamour and glitter because, you know, real life isn't so much that way <laughs> for most of us. What would you like people to take away from Miss Del Rio? I would like people to take away an image of Dolores del Rio as a woman who faced one obstacle after the other with determination and resilience, as a young married woman, as she wanted to have children and raise a family, as was expected of Mexican women of her class. But she had a devastating miscarriage that left her unable to have a baby. So she gave her life another direction. I think another kind of woman might be defeated by this kind of a situation, but Dolores del Rio wasn't. And so in defiance of social norms and the wishes of her in-laws, she left Mexico and became an actress. Uh, in the United States, she, learned, had, she had to learn a new language, a new culture. She had to face racism. And even uh, she was even investigated for un-American activities because all Mexican actors were suspect due to the communist influence in Mexican revolution. And once back in Mexico, she had to put up with a crushing machismo of her director, Emilio Fernandez. Although she couldn't have children of her own, at the end of her life, uh, she started daycare centers for uh, uh, the women who worked in the studios, uh, both in the theater and in the film studios, uh, in, uh, mostly in menial jobs, women who were... Who were um, who were janitors, carpenters, painters, seamstresses. And as she took this task very seriously. She read uh, the teachings of Jean Piaget and uh, Maria Montessori on uh, early childhood education. At the time uh, in, in Mexico, there were a lot of women in the studios who, uh, who were from the countryside. And in the villages where they lived, they had all kinds of support. Uh, they had mothers and aunts and cousins who, who, who helped. But in the city, they didn't have any of that. 
and often their husbands, often there were no husbands or often the husbands were off working. And so, uh, the, the women had to put their children in what they call guarderias, uh, which, which were just places, guardar means to keep or to hold. And they were just kind of holding centers for children. There was, you know, one adult and 40 kids and, and, and there was no, there was no education going on. But uh, what Lola wanted was a real educational environment. And so the daycare centers that she started were like nothing that existed in Mexico uh, or really, really even, even in the whole world for, for little kids to, to start out um, their lives in an, in an atmosphere of nurturing and love and learning. This book has just come out. Are you already working on something new? Yes, I am already starting on a new project, but I am a bit superstitious, so I think I'd rather not divulge what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Barbara. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed speaking with you, too. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Barbara Mujica about Miss Del Rio. Find out more about her at barbaramujica.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at New Books Network. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.